All right, we um, are continuing in 1 John, and today we get to talk about navigating deception in the end times. And I thought this morning I was reminded of something Mark Twain once said. He said, I had no time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one instead. Um, I had no time this week to write you a short sermon, so we have a full sermon instead. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I, part, part of this just comes from the pure difficulty of the passage we have this week. There's some tough stuff in the passage. Um, and part of it is, as I worked through it, I, could, I, I like to have one through line that covers everything together. And I got to the end of the week, and I realized I probably had two sermons. And I was like, oh, no. And I had to move some stuff aside. And um, this is a week where I hope you can come in the spirit of the buffet, um, which is uh, you can't eat all of it. Um, so take what you like and, you know, come for some pieces and you'll be fine. And uh, if, you doesn't, if it doesn't land, let it, let it go. I'll try not to. Um, sometimes when I have a lot, I speak more quickly because I feel bad because I'm taking your time. But I'll try not to do that this morning. So I think there's some difficult things. In addition, in addition to the difficulty of there being a lot, some of the difficulty is that there's some difficult theology in this passage, some challenging theology. And I'm going to break down what I talk about into kind of three big, broad sections today. First, I'm going to talk about what we mean when we talk about the end times. And this is a discipline in theology called eschatology. Eschaton means last, and ology is just the study of last things. So we'll talk about the last things. In the second section, which is shorter, I'll talk about deception in the last times, especially the deception of bad teachers. And in the third section, we'll look at what it means to live well in the end times, in John's language, how to abide in life. So the bulk of our time is about the end times. Part of it's about bad teaching in the end times, and the end is about living well in the end times. Um, and what binds them all together is our text. So what I'd like to do now is to read first, um, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. They'll be on the screen, but I'll read from my Bible here. So John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so that it would be shown that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father, and the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you, will, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father." This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him and shame at his coming." If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, I think this is a difficult passage. I also just think it's difficult to read. 
Um, Some of the words are funny, and they seem out of place, and it's hard to kind of work out what John is saying. But there's a lot going on, and I want to begin just by exploring what we think are these characteristics of the last hour. What are the characteristics? And I just want to look at the first words of the first verse of 1 John 2.18. Children, it is the last hour. So what does John mean by this little phrase? Before we can even begin to describe these characteristics and what he means, I fear we must acknowledge some difficulties about the idea of the end times, what is to come, and what I said is called eschatology. Now, first of all, we have to acknowledge that there are few more fraught and confusing subjects in all of theology. If you ask 10 theologians what they think, you'll get 11 different answers. A New Testament scholar, Luke Timothy Johnson, writes the following. He says, few writings in all of literature have been so obsessively read with such generally disastrous results as the book of Revelation. And I think that he's right. But his assessment extends beyond just John's revelation to the whole of eschatology. And there's lots of confusion when we discuss the end times. Now, that being said, eschatology is a subject about which good Christians can disagree. And I'm likely to say things today that might be fresh to you and may even challenge some of the things you've been taught before. Nevertheless, I hope I can show you how my thinking in these matters is grounded in Scripture, especially in the text that we're going to look at. And with that said, I'm really not planning to give you an exhaustive overview of the end times this morning. I have no charts and no dates and times, and I'm not going to tie things into the news and show things that are going on. Merely, I'm going to touch on the elements that seem especially clear from our passage in 1 John. And so we can talk about four elements. And again, 1 John 2.18 says, children, it is the last time. Now, this is classic end times language. These are the last days. This is the last hour. We are sitting in the end times. And the language often triggers in us, readers many centuries later, a habit of looking to our news sources to detect evidence of the imminent end of the world. Russia is, of course, prominent in the news cycle right now. But when I was a kid, there were all sorts of associations between Moscow and Gog and Magog in Ezekiel. Do any of you remember the old kind of reading of these things? (laughs) Some of you are not ashamed to raise your hand. Thank you. That's right. There were correlations between exotic locusts in John's revelation and helicopters. Oh, that's what's going on. All this stuff's happening. And in every decade I've been alive, there have been strong attempts to find on a rotating political figure who will finally qualify as the Antichrist. Okay? It keeps changing every 10 years who's this prominent figure. So this sets me up for the very first thing I want us to realize about the end times. So number one is this. In the thinking of the apostles, the end times began on an April Sunday morning in AD 33. In the thinking of the apostles, the end times began on an April Sunday morning in AD 33. We have good reason for believing the resurrection happened on the year 33, and that Passover that that year was probably April the 3rd. Okay? So just to give you, like, we can can kind of find... All calendars are funny. Don't don't worry too much about this stuff. Um, we have a good reason for thinking this. And I'll try to be as explicit on this point as I can. The end times are not coming. They're here. And they began 2,000 years ago with the resurrection of King Jesus. If you look closely at the preaching of the apostles, what they preach consistently is the resurrection. The cross matters. It's important. But what they talk about, what they're really excited about, is that somebody came back from the dead. 
really excited about this because it points to the fact that something has changed. That someone coming back from the dead changes the world, changes the rules of the world, changes everything about the world. It, in fact, inaugurates the age of the world we are currently in, the end times. They begin with resurrection. Now, in the next moments, I get to drop some pretty complex biblical theology on, on, so buckle your seatbelts. When Jesus says these things in Matthew 24, 29, he says this, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Um, Most people read this and think end times and they begin to look to the future. And I know lots of people who start to look for modern astrological signs that could validate this. But I think what's missing is a little reading ahead. Matthew 27, 45 says that while Jesus was dying on the cross, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. So there was a period of darkness while Christ was on the cross. And then Matthew 27, 51, right after he's died, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and rocks were split. So there are physical signs accompanying the death of Christ. In other words, I don't think, if we're looking for a future event, excuse me, I think we've missed the big events that have already happened. The sun went dark while Christ was on the cross, and the earth was shaken when he died. Now, there's even more biblical subtext in the language of sun, moon, and stars, because it evokes the creation story of Genesis 1. There, sun, moon, and stars are the bodies that govern time. The sun tells you the day. The moon tells you what month it is. Our word month is still drawn from the word moon. We have a series of moons, which is fun to say. And the stars tell you the season. Sun, moon, and stars are the governances of time in the Hebrew Bible. The darkness at Jesus' death recalls the darkness that preceded creation. And his rising from the dead marks the beginning of a new age of the earth, a new creation. In this age, the last age, we take our cues for time from the resurrected Christ. He has fundamentally reset the world order. That new world order is now called the end times. I said this is complex. I'm really happy to discuss this more with any one of you later. Happy to take time for that. In the meantime, it leads us to kind of a second point about eschatology, and that's this. The Hebrews almost always speak about time metaphorically. The Hebrews almost always speak about time metaphorically. Remember that in a world that preceded mechanical clocks, almost every measure of time was a guess. They were educated guesses, and they could be quite sophisticated, but they lacked our commitment to exactitude. Remember that the Hebrew Sabbath begins at sundown and goes to sundown the next day. That's a timescale that changes every day and with every season and is subject to things like cloud cover. It's it's all guesswork. It's overall is quite variable. Therefore, it's always, I'll say this very clearly, it's always a mistake for us to read Hebrew times and numbers with a modern lens of exactitude. Our Greek Bible speaks about time in three ways. We've got three kinds of time, kairos time, chronos time, and ion time. Kairos time is an appointed time, like you've got an appointment to make. And chronos time is this period of time, like a length of time. And aeon time is an age of time. And these kinds of time concepts correlate more comfortably to our ideas of like small, big, and long, rather than, say, moving a decimal between 0.55 and 50. Do you see what I mean? It's It's less exact, it's more general in terms of how it's, it's more gestural. 
Nevertheless, however metaphorical, metaphorical was the Hebrew approach to time, in speaking of the last hour, as John does here, they nevertheless meant something present. And I think focusing on the present is what is critically important. John isn't calling us to attend to the last hour so we can think about what's next. That's really important. John isn't saying it's the last hour so that you can think about what's coming next. He wants you to think about now. Now is the last hour. In the light of the new age of the world, in the light of the resurrection and what comes along with it, how are we going to live? If this really is the last hour, it has implications for our ethics and our discernment. Now, this leads us in part to the great passage on the end times and the Gospels, where Jesus preaches a sermon in Matthew 24 and 5. In both those chapters, which we're going to deal with momentarily, Jesus prepares us for the end times, which I suggest to you begins with the resurrection. And in chapter 24, Jesus tells us what to look out for, and in chapter 25, he tells us how to live until he returns. But I can summarize 24 as follows. In fact, this is our third point. The characteristics of the end times that Jesus describes have always been present. The characteristics of the end times that Jesus prophesies have always been present. So here's, I've pulled seven out of Matthew 24 and 25. Number one, the destruction of the temple. Well, it's the only kind of explicit prediction, and it happened in 70 AD. It's not coming again. It's already happened. Number two, there will be false Christs. Number three, nation against nation, so wars and rumors of wars. Number four, famines and earthquakes. Number five, persecution. Number six, apostasy, people walking away from the faith. And number seven, the deception of God's people. So regard this list for a second and ask yourself, when in the history of the church have any of these things been absent? They've always been there. There's always been wars and rumors of wars. And there's always been famines and earthquakes. And there's always been false Christs wandering around. And there's always been deception of God's people. And it seems like there's always been apostasy. Certainly it's present in 1 John with the early church. All the stuff is present from day one until now. Some of you are thinking, but aren't there more of these things happening? Isn't there like an increase, Jeremy? I don't think so. I just think you're watching more news. I think you're doom scrolling. I think there's simply more reporting. And we're all struggling to find meaning in the massive meaning in the massive information we're doing. And eschatology is a handy way to find meaning in just the difficulty of living in a world that's not our home. When we read Matthew 24, looking for the future, I think we miss its primary point, that it is a passage about the present, and that perhaps the key message of the whole of Matthew 24 is simply this. You're not home here, people. You'll never be home here. Now, what's more, there are no specific signs we can point to as significant harbingers of Christ's return. There is no specific signs we can look to. Jesus told us, no one knows the day or the hour, so stop trying to predict it. Jesus says, I don't even know. Only the Father knows. If Jesus doesn't know, no pastor anywhere in the world knows. Let's just be clear. Nobody knows. And this gets us to the three things the three messages of Matthew 25, which tell us in turn, through the parable of the ten virgins, of the talents, and of the sheep and the goats, there's one message running through all three of those, which is be prepared for his return at any moment. Just be ready. Once again, we're not looking to the future. We'd be giving solid advice for the present. Stay alert. 
invest well, care for the church. So this brings me to the fourth thing I want to say about eschatology, this big subject. And this may be the most startling thing of all for some of you, and that's this. Antichrist is not a figure, but a state of mind. Antichrist is not a figure, but a state of mind. It can be really exciting to try to identify the Antichrist, whether it's Saddam Hussein, which is in my lifetime, Vladimir Putin, Khrushchev in my parents' lifetime, or even Donald Trump. Okay. We can try to pair the characteristics of what we think is the worst possible person, the person who will definitely lead the world into vast persecution and deception, but that's not how it works. On this point, John is exceptionally clear. Look again at verse 18 with me. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, and from this we know it is the last hour. Hang on, wait, many Antichrists? I thought there was one. I thought we knew his name, right? Are we looking for like a variety pack of apocalyptic figures that like the end times is like instead of Avengers assemble, it's Antichrists assemble and they join forces to overthrow God? Not really because as I said, I think Antichrist is a state of mind and while that's tricky, I think you can handle it. What we often do is that we begin with our ideas of the end of the world, and we've got lots of funny ideas about the end of the world, and then we try to slot this idea of a super awful figure into those ideas at the end of the world. And I think that's the wrong way to go about it. I think what we should do is start with Christ and think about what the opposite of Jesus represents, because that, after all, is what it means to be anti-Christ, opposite of Christ. Now, to get at this, we're going to do a little language study for just a moment. So the word Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Messiah, and both words mean anointed one, okay? Christos, chrism, Messiah is to smear, and both of them mean anointed one. And if you recall our reading of 1 John a short while ago, you'll remember that three times in our reading, John referred to an anointing. I believe that's significant. We're going to come back to this in a moment. And so let me tell you what's going on here in part. In the second psalm, the psalmist begins with a statement of the rebellion of the world against God. And verse 2 of Psalm 2 says this, The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, the word anointed there is the word Messiah, or Christ, against God's Christ. And the plan of the psalm is that God's anointed Christ, his son, stands as this appointed, appointed response to the rebellion of the world. And the psalmist records the appointing process in verse 7. Here it says, uh, the, the person being appointed says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Now we're getting there, but I haven't given you quite all the pieces yet. So hold on for just a minute more. Christ, Messiah, and Son of God, these are clearly the same figure, and note that in the psalm, it's the Son asks the Father, and the Father grants him the nations as a gift in response. So what's the final piece we need? Well, think, what does Satan offer Jesus in the third temptation? He offers him all the nations of the world if Jesus will bow down to him instead. So what does Satan really offer Jesus in that moment? He offers him God's reward but a way to sidestep the cross. You can inherit the nations, but you don't have to suffer in the process. Um, I actually think U2 and their hit song Vertigo hits this pretty cleanly on the point. Bono envisions himself standing before a crowd of thousands, 
The vertigo is the head spinning of being so popular and so big. And in a moment, he's offered the world and the whispering voice says, all of this, all of this could be yours. All of this, all of this could be yours. Just give me what I want and no one gets hurt. It's a powerful moment in that song, and it echoes what Satan says to Jesus. Jesus, you can have it all if only you'll bow down to me. And Christ rejects Satan. And in rejecting Satan, he embraces the cross, which means he embraces suffering, obedience, pain, and death. If this is what it means to be Christ, then we have some idea now of what it means to be antichrist. It means to try to grab the rewards of Christianity without the cost of Christianity. It means trying to seek Christ's power without a life of surrender. It means to attempt to claim the life of Christ without embracing the cross of Christ. It means that instead of embracing the meekness of Jesus, the disposition that trusts God's power to achieve his ends, we trust in our power to get what we think is our idea of those ends. It's power without sacrifice. Power without surrender. And if this is what it means to be antichrist, I think it's a lot more common than we want to admit. We can easily find ourselves in a disposition that is fundamentally anti-Christ when we ourselves are not surrendered. All right, to summarize the eschatology we've gone through, this big stuff, I think the end times began with the resurrection. I think that we're not supposed to look for a future event, but to look to the present ethics and how we live right now. The end times features we had are always present, as long as Jesus has prophesied them. And one of those end times features present is the disposition of Antichrist, which, for which we have to be on alert. And this brings us to our next main section, understanding deception in the last hour, because understanding deception in the figure and understanding the state of my Antichrist overlap with one another. So I suspect that the key verse for the whole passage and possibly even the principal occasion for the book of 1 John is 1 John 2:26. He writes, "These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you." There are people trying to deceive his church that he loves and he's writing to correct these deceptions. John is concerned that his people will be taken out of abiding in Christ by means of deception. Knowing this, he's trying to safeguard our abiding by alerting us to the nature of the deception. And on this, I have two things I want to say. First, when Christ was revealed, the possibility of Antichrist arrived. The moment Christ was revealed, the possibility of Antichrist arrived. Once we knew what it meant to follow God radically, once we'd seen and experienced the perfection of Christ, once we saw the new world order of life in Christ had been established in the church, at that same moment, the evil one began working to corrupt it. And his favorite means of acting is through sowing confusion. Remember again the serpent's tactic in the garden. Did God really say? Are you sure about that? It's confusion about the character of God, about the commands we've heard, about who God is. His efforts were to sow doubt. And in the same way, now that Christ has been revealed, he sows doubt and confusion about Christ. He does it through false Christs. He does it through false teachers. And especially through this newfound mechanic of Antichrist. And so what does he do? He tempts us to skip our crosses, the ones we're asked to bear, tempts us to skirt our obedience to the Father, to abandon meekness and a rush of personal power. Instead of being people who wait on the Lord, we can be people who get things done. In fact, the Lord needs our help to get things done in the world, doesn't he? 
<laughs> it's kind of the attitude that we take sometimes. I think a spirit of Antichrist is at work when we think we know better. Second thing to say is that deception is expected. Um, this was not a sermon point I anticipated making when I planned this this week. Deception is expected. I don't actually like this point. <laughs> I think that deception is not a bug of the end times, but a feature. It happens so that what is truly God's work can be freshly revealed. A couple passages. One is Matthew 24, 4b and 5. Jesus says, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And so Jesus points to the fact that false Christs are a feature of the end times. It's like saying, hey, I'm introducing new currency. You should anticipate forgeries. New currency, new world order, you're going to experience forgeries. Just be on, the, be on the alert. Make sure you know what the real is. I was reading a scholar's work this past week who feels that there is a strong textual link between our passage in 1 John and a passage like Daniel 11.35. It's also a book about the end times. And Daniel says this, Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, don't be misled. Daniel's a very confusing book, and I don't want to overplay my understanding of Daniel. But it seems clear to me that between Jesus and John and Daniel, there's a consistent idea that a feature of the end times will be deceptive teachers who lead God's people astray. It's expected. And Daniel appears to point us to the purpose of the falling away. Its purpose is to refine, purge, and make pure. In other words, and I think this is the really challenging part, God has allowed deceptive teaching in his church for the sake of purifying his church. I'm going to tell you, there is nothing I hate more than deceptive teaching in the church. You want to get under my skin? You show me footage of a preacher leading people astray. I get so mad about this stuff. And I hear God saying, well, it's for my own good purposes that I've let this happen. And I think, I think I could run the world better than God. I can't, but I've got moments of frustration there. The point is this. There are and will always be bad teachers. Because part of our responsibility as Christ followers is to preserve our anointing by committing and recommitting to Christ. By coming again and again to the sources of life, especially this book as our source of life. And by never allowing ourselves to rest on what we think we know of God. And continually pursuing God himself in the abiding community of the church. And false teachers force us to be the church. With that being said, John's focus in this chapter isn't as much on bad teachers themselves. In fact, in chapter 4, he comes back to them quite explicitly. And in a few weeks when we deal with that passage, I'm going to focus on bad teaching and how we can deal with it. So we're going to spend more time on how to diagnose bad teaching in a few weeks to come. Instead, in today's passage, John draws, John draws our attention to how to live well within the last hour. And that's our final section, living well in the last hour. Given that this is the last hour, these are the end times, given there will be great deception that purifies us, how are we going to live really well? And I see three prominent instructions drawn from our passage. The first instruction is this. We live well in the last hour by recalling our anointing. This is John's language. We live well in the last hour by recalling our anointing. Uh, 1 John 2.20 and 2.27 say this. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. And 27 says, as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, 
And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So recall with me that anointing and the word Christ and the word Messiah were all linked concepts. And Jesus is anointed by John the Baptist when the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And in the church age, we are each anointed similarly by the Spirit when we believe in Christ. And what that makes us is little Christs. And that, in fact, is what the word Christianoi means. It means little Christ, your little anointlings, okay? People who've been anointed. So in one sense, recalling our anointing is an invitation to lean into the Christian life, to a life that is sealed by the Holy Spirit. So recalling your anointing is just to rely on who you are in Christ and in the Spirit. But in another sense, John seems to have something quite specific in mind. And the way he speaks about anointing in this passage is in the context of knowing the truth. Now, I don't personally believe that he means we have some kind of spiritual, supernatural knowledge that sits inside each of us. I've kind of thought that sometimes when reading it before. I don't think that right now. Sometimes something, excuse me, something in our recalling our anointing seems to mean instead the recalling of our first instruction in the Lord. And I get as evidence from this verse 24a, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. Let it abide in you which you heard from the beginning. And this is tied to the anointing section. It seems to me by this and in the context of 1 John 2 that what John wants us to do is cling to our original teaching about Christ, to hold to it in the face of deceptive teachers who are saying different things about Christ. And so, yes, lean on the Spirit, but also lean on the time when you were first anointed, your first teaching, your first love, which, of course, is the profession of the Lordship of Christ. So this leads to a second thing we do, which is to live well in the last hour by feeding on good teaching. We live well in the last hour by feeding on good teaching. And again, a deception appears to be a planned event in the end times. Deceivers will come, and part of our purification process is the business of investing ourselves in good teaching. John gives some good, clear criteria for good teaching. This is verses 22 and 3. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So there's a pretty simple one-to-one correlation between confessing who Christ is and whether you're with him or not with him. Uh, This is what John seems to have in mind. And the primary characteristic of a faithful teacher in John's day and for John's audience is the profession of Christ as the Son of God. There are other characteristics of good teachers and bad teachers. These are characteristics I plan to return to in a few weeks. For now, I highlight one feature. Uh, Just a few nights ago, I was reading an essay by C.S. Lewis that spoke to this business of good teaching and bad teaching. And Lewis, speaking of the ministry of apologetics, says the following. Here's what he says. Our business as teachers is to present that which is timeless in the particular language of our own age. The bad preacher does exactly the opposite. He takes the ideas of our own age and tricks them out in the traditional language of Christianity. Now, that may seem complex, but I think it's pretty insightful, if subtle. Good teachers present old truths in new language. There's a through line through all of history where all the good teachers say basically the same things. They're just presenting it in fresh ways for people to hear. Bad teachers present new ideas clothed in Christian language. They appear Christian, but are actually worldly. Um, There's lots of things I could pull from right now. I listed three very briefly. A doctrine of affirmation in all things is a worldly doctrine painted in the church with Christian language. It's not a Christian doctrine. The doctrine of unexceptionalism 
the idea that Christianity is just one among many different religions, that's a worldly doctrine, but often painted in Christian language. Or certain doctrines of, say, civic freedom and liberty and what it means to be a political Christian, those are just worldly ideas painted with Christian language. They're not Christian doctrines. And so we can begin to maybe make some distinctions between good teaching and bad teaching for what is old and what is new. And how do we know the difference? But that's coming back in a few weeks' time. Third and finally, we live well in the last hour by abiding in Christ. That's pretty straightforward. That seems to be the main message of 1 John. Live well by abiding in Christ. It's the clear instruction of verse 28. Now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So, brothers and sisters, cling to Christ. And do this in a couple ways. The first is to abide by obedience. Reject the easy path of the Antichrist mindset. And choose instead the difficult but rewarding path of Christ-likeness. Now, earlier I mentioned the song Vertigo by U2 where Bono was offered everything. If only he would bow down and the resolution of that song is breathtaking. If you remember it, he cries out, Your love is teaching me how to kneel. I've been offered the world. I'm going to kneel instead. It's pretty cool. Go back and listen later. You'll love it. And of course, the other way we can cling to Christ is by abiding in community. For John, everyone who chooses the way of Antichrist, there is a kind of going out, a leaving. There's a choosing of power, personal power, and advantage over the sacrifice required of community. And loving one another is one of the ways we live well in the last times. We have covered a lot of ground today. The smorgasbord was quite full. But I think John's message is reasonably clear. Given that since the resurrection of our Lord we are living in the end times, let us beware their dangers, especially of false teachers. And let us lend live well within them by drawing from our anointing, listening to good teaching, and abiding in Christ. And may we do this by the power of the Spirit and to the glory of the Father. Amen.